Welcome to another episode of the Pedestrian Podcast. It actually happened. Myself, Stuart Court, and Mr. Adam Nathan. How are we, sir? What's that that happens, Stu? We'll get into it in a sec, but yeah. Well, was this? Something... I've, I've been in uh, under a rock for about yeah, uh, 24 uh, hours. Did something happen? Ju- yeah, Julian Love lit a cigar in Arizona. In oh my January. God, he didn't. He did. It's a Say it ain't so. Yeah, four days later, they're still talking about it. Oh no, that, uh, must, be, that must be like... <laughs> dominating all the areas in Seattle but, right now. Everything, everything. Like, I mean, Jerry Tapato is the most relieved man in Seattle sports media, I think, because <laughs> no one's talking about him anymore. Uh, and gentlemen, uh, as two, the bed pub once again, one of our favourite people, and someone I thought was one of like, the go-to people for this because he covered him for s- such a long time. Of it, well, pretty much every, every, every year of the four, last 14 years. Mr. Danny O'Neill, how are we, sir? I'm doing very well. I appreciate you guys having me on, and it's very kind. The nice things you said about me, Stu. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, what, what about you? Looks like this again. <laughs> the <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a it's a weird thing. Um, I was really surprised, and I probably shouldn't have been. And I even one of my friends, uh, who is a 49ers fan, who I knew from high school, said reading something I'd written earlier in the week. He said, you kind of seemed to be hinting that this was going to happen. And I was like, not really. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised we're talking about a, a change and that it's also very clear that this was not a change that Pete Carroll sought or wanted. And it is one that has been handed down to him and he's, he's accepting it. And I think he did that with a great deal of grace and class, but it's pretty monumental turning point here for the franchise yeah yeah so for the first time since january 10th 2010 pete carroll on january 11th 2024 is no longer the seahawks head coach 14 years all of the wins nfc title games the super bowl in there the greatest of the modern era one of the best defenses ever assembled some of the like we've, we've, we've talked a few times adam on this part about like the matt rushmore and seattle sport a lot of a lot of like the nominations for that, uh, the 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 start point of that is January 10, 2010, isn't it? And like it's just oh, it's this we've obviously everyone's been like calling for it in inverted commas, but seeing Schefter's tweet and then seeing like watching the press conference last night, it's it's like oh fuck, like this is like that shit's not gonna be the same anymore, Adam. Yeah, it's mad. And I'm an inadvertent 12 since 12, I think they call it. It just so happened that (laughs) the first time I was going to go to Seattle was when Russell Wilson was a rookie quarterback. And, you know, by to extrapolate that, the only head coach I've ever known in Seattle is Pete Carroll. Um, Probably, look, I'm not going to bury the lead or try and pretend otherwise. It's not like I've not been calling for this change to happen for a little while. I'm not going to sort of... I hate that when people, you know, go from being overly critical to then start fawning. And obviously there will be a time and a place that we, you know, eulogize Pete Carroll's Seahawks career. But, you know, I'm not going to say that we weren't calling for this for a little while, but it's still weird the fact that the podium is going to be filled by someone not Pete Carroll. And you're going to be hearing post-game stuff from someone that isn't, this hasn't been the status quo for the last 
you know, 10, 12 years for me, 14 for everyone else. But, but Danny in particular, someone that's covered Pete for such a long time. Um, how do you think that adjustment is going to be just from a, a purely, uh, not superficial standpoint, but just, you know, a macro standpoint, Pete Carroll's no longer the head coach. What, what do you think is going to feel the most jarring first and foremost? It's going to be a different voice in for fans in those press conferences and a different approach, um, a different message. You're going to see a different style of play. And I would say specifically on the defensive side of the ball, uh, I would I would guess that you're going to see uh, a coach who likes to blitz a lot more. Um, if there was one sort of underlying football rationale for this, it is that Seattle's defense which is Pete Carroll's forte and was this franchise's signature for the first half of his tenure has not approached. I mean, basically has been average a couple of times and generally way below average and really troubling these past two years. And I think you're going to see a very different approach on the defensive side of the ball. Um, We'll see how the culture changes i think that pete's imprint and john schneider still being um and now being the 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 leader of the franchise you're going to see a lot of the 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 positivity and i don't i don't anticipate we're going to see all of a sudden a belichick cold corporate structure that's put in place where fear and intimidation are being used but I think schematically and and certainly just in the voice, you're gonna see you're gonna see a striking difference in in how it's presented. Pete is one of one when it comes to how he relates both to his team and how he relates to the public. And it's gonna be a very different identity going forward. Yeah, that's the thing I kept thinking of when I was watching him talk last night. It's like no one's gonna be standing up there like talking like he was, talking about Probably not put, talking about like Bobby Wagner and Gino and talking about the like the relationships with the players he had in the same way, like not even just like cadence, but someone who was like was so comfortable in what he wanted to try and do and get his message across. And like all but like every every Seahawk player for the last 14 years has posted something, it seems like on social media, like oh, when he did this, like Jimmy Graham said he like being wheeled out of the hospital, Pete and his wife were there waiting for him at like 4 a.m. and stuff like that. I think that's the biggest thing for me as I watch him. It's like, oh yeah, we're, like, we're not never going to get like that again. It's, it, it, was, it was really, really weird watching him talk for half an hour. It's like, it's just, it's probably, uh, in the, it, it, well, it is. It's the last time in that like context we're going to hear him um, um, talk. And like, as I said, Danny, 14 years about that, you were covering him. Do you remember like, what you were like first like, you know, I think I think we said to you before that like, you were one of the people that he seemed to like enjoy answering the question from or talking to <laughs> and like like maybe, maybe like a bit like a jab coming back from him but to, like that building up that relationship is what Michael Sean Dugar, Greg Bell, Bob Gondotto have all got to do with this relatively or well, some of the names are, are somewhat familiar but they've got to go back to day one again with the next guy haven't they like building a relationship and like he's like Pete saw is so important. It's going to be another thing for everyone to like deal with, isn't it? Yeah. And I'll give Pete a lot of credit. And Mike Holmgren was the same way. Um, It is possible in the NFL to be a coach who disregards the local media and who feeds information to national reporters, whether it's Jay Glazier or Adam Schefter and participates in 
the information exchange above the heads of the local guys. And it, it's possible to treat them as peons. And there are coaches who do that. Uh, Pete was really great to the local people who covered him. Um, he was really generous in his answers. He really, there, there are things that he would never tell you. And he used to hate the Fridays um, because he would say it's talking about sprained ankles and hamstrings. He hated that that's sort of the 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 deliberately opaque, unclear answers, sort of what I consider the 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 necessary parts of beat coverage. But he really would try to answer things about how he tried to motivate people, how he tried to do that. I know when he showed up and I remember covering their first OTA and I saw them, the bet the drill is called running bags, where they set out these pads and have players run through them with high knees. And when I saw that happening, I thought, I don't think I've ever seen a college team do that. I'm not even sure if most of the high school teams I covered when I was a young cub reporter did that drill. That's how basic it was. And I thought it was corny. And and there was there was part of me that wondered, like, I don't know how how this shit's gonna work at this level. And that drill remained part of Pete Carroll's approach the entire 14 years there. And I came to understand what the reason was for putting it in place, the reason for a lot of the other things he did that would be considered corny. The majority of teams, I'm not sure if there was any other team that played music during practice when Pete became mm. the Seahawks head coach. I, I know that it was used as a punchline and sort of a reference point of Camp Seahawks with its music going. I think the majority of teams, if not the majority, a third of them, now play music during practice. Like he definitely he took a different approach and despite what I would consider to be some early skepticism and I think there's room to debate whether or not it ran its course in Seattle and whether there's a certain shelf life there's no doubt that it worked because in years 3 through 5 this team was as good as any team in the NFL has been in the salary cap era. Like that's how dominant they were beginning December, 2012 and going up to the final yard in that Super Bowl in Arizona. That was as dominant a run as we've seen from an NFL team. And really even the next couple of seasons, they were still able to flip a switch late in the year and really get on rolls. Like Pete could get that team he could get that team believing and playing with momentum going into the playoffs each of those years. And it was really, really remarkable. He had a beautiful answer yesterday about sort of what he is and how he's become the coach he has. And it basically pertained to the idea that he has found out exactly who he wants to be. And he said, you know, you, this is how you, if you want to be the best dad in your mind, find out how to do it. The best coach, the best blah, blah, blah. Do you think that his unwavering acceptance of what he is with basically nothing outside that, he, you know, Pete was Pete unequivocally the whole way through. Do you think that is how you get the buy-in from someone like uh, Michael Bennett, for example, to jump over bags? Because if it was someone, another coach that asked him to do that, who didn't come across as a genuine, do you think perhaps the players who are all proper alphas like, let's be honest, like, it's not just the fact that they were good players. They were unbelievable personalities. For him to manage to convince people to do stuff that is like peewee football stuff 
is that just because he was unequivocally Pete Carroll the whole way through and that earned the buy-in from everyone that, that he passed by? Yes, that's part of it. There is no doubt that a player, players sniff out phonies. And there are a lot of guys who say the same things that Pete does and preach the same things he does about being positive and encouraging players and it being fun and that being the most important part. And when it comes down to it and it gets tough, those are the same coaches who blame players, who threaten jobs and who implement fear. The reason that, and I, the reason Pete's corny stuff worked was because he was true to that and because it was genuinely fun. And when guys leaned into it and really, really bought in and decided, okay, I'm going to run these bags as these coaches shout encouragement at me, it became fun and it made football feel different than it has felt for most of those guys. There was a player that has played for him in both college and the pros in describing what it was like to play for Pete, he said, it feels like the way football always should have been in the the upbeat nature of it. And that was a player who had gone through some rocky stretches with Pete. And when he left Pete the second time, didn't was tired of it, but really felt that when he when he connects with when you connect with him that first time, when you really buy into what he's preaching and you watch what you're able to achieve collectively, it feels like, man, this is the way it should have always been. And it's kind of like you've got people that are, in general, anytime somebody tries something new or different, you'll see a group of people who are willing to to try it. But then there's a group that are kind of a little too cool for school and like, I'm not really sure if I, we'll see how this shit's going to work. And, and then when those guys kind of try, and if you, if you sort of give up the idea of how does it look when I'm doing this, do I look cool when I'm doing this, when you really get that sort of collective buy-in, I do believe that there is something to that being an approach that allows groups to come together. And Pete got guys to let their guard down. And that did create these bonds and was part of the reason I'm convinced that they were. It also helped that Pete wasn't going to squash individuals. It it helped Marshawn Lynch. It's not like Marshawn Lynch wasn't a talented running back in Buffalo. It wasn't like he was someone. It was that Marshawn is so headstrong and so anti-authority that guys, coaches would eventually feel like if he's not going to fall in line, I can't do anything with him. And Pete, Pete, it was someone who encouraged people to join rather than demanding participation. And that worked really effectively. Yeah. I mean, you've talked about the first one with the jump over the bags. Do you remember like a moment when you were standing on the burn at VMAC where you thought like, like you could see that the message, what he was telling you in the auditorium was getting through and that that shit was about to get fun. The moment there's, there's two sort of landmark victories that I would point to for the Seahawks. Um, the first one is I'll do the one that everybody remembers first, and then I'll go to the next one in 2012. It, it was the beginning of December. Seattle had gone into its buy. I believe that they were six and four going into the buy. They went and played at Miami and they blew that game. They had a seven point lead twice in the fourth quarter and they ended up losing 
Um, there was a bad rough in the passer penalty against Earl Thomas. Leon Washington had returned to kickoff for a touchdown. Uh, as as the plane took off, there was news that Sherman and Brown were facing four game PED suspensions, and so the team is six and five. And there's the feeling that the the year is on the ropes. And they go to 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 Chicago to play sort of the big bad bears. Erlocker's still there, and it was a tough game. Uh, they almost blew it by giving up a late field goal to force overtime. But that was the game where they really let Russell loose in terms of the read option. Um, Might have been the last game Erlocker played because I believe he got injured chasing Russ. And the feeling that they had in the locker room after that game, it was clear that there had been a tipping point. Uh, Michael Robinson, I remember what he said was, like, we found our quarterback here against the big bad Bears. He's a bad man. Mm. And that being the moment that okay it's it's all it's all come together they've they've really put it together the game bef- the the turning point before that the one that nobody will ever point to came in the second half of the 2011 season which is kind of a lost year they started Tavares Jackson he got banged up uh, tor- suffered a, a pectoral muscle injury he he ended up coming back but the second half of that season they beat Baltimore at home in a game where they ended up getting a first down late when Marshawn Lynch jukes. I just saw the move a couple days ago. He juked two Baltimore defenders, including um, Ray Lewis, mm. on, on a short little pass to get a first down. They ran out the clock. And I remember the this, the way the offensive line celebrated that. And that was a moment where you could see that the players believed in the physical style of play and that they were capable of executing. They were capable of beating this big, badass Ravens team with Ray Lewis on it by going out there and just bare-knuckle, defend the run, run the ball, the short little pass, where you saw sort of that confidence because for all of Pete's lovey-dovey Coach Double Rainbow stuff, like, at the at the core of it, he believes in knocking the hell out of people and playing an exceptionally physical style of football. And and you could see in that victory over the Ravens, they didn't end up making the playoffs. That, but I, I, it was a long time after that game before they were ever out muscled again. It it was years before they ever faced a game. They lost plenty of games, but a game they never got their ass kicked for about five years after that game. Thanks, Adam. Yeah, no, it, it's just it's it, to condense fourteen years of such greatness into you know an hour podcast is just so difficult. My my brain's bouncing around all, all over the place, and I, I wondered that you mentioned that Pete was one of one, um, which obviously he he is and certainly will be for Seattle. I wonder if, and I don't mean this as like part of a downfall sort of thing, but. Pete's what Pete was exceptional in was obviously that level of of team building and getting buy-in and making it feel fun at a time where, you know, the other coaches around the league, your Belichicks, your Paytons, you know, just miserable bastards ultimately that, <laughs> you know, you, you would play for them because you had to and, you know, the the light at the end of the tunnel, you know, maybe shined and, and sat on your on your index finger in the shape of a ring. But ultimately, you know, no one wants to do that. And I just wonder if as the game progresses and now we are seeing so many more coaches like Mike McDaniel, Sean McVay, do you think that in a way he's been bitten by his own snake because people have realized that, you know, what he was exceptional in, 
maybe he's not such an outlier anymore, but also he was kind of a trailblazer for that at the same time. So it, it's his 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 focal point of why people would want to play for him became sort of a blessing and almost a curse because it taught others there is another way to do this. It's possible. I think it's going to be really interesting to try and look at and as we get a little more distance and as we see what happens with this group of players to see if someone else can get more out of them. I, I could see that, that, that Pete and his focus on presenting, motivating players by presenting the best possibilities for them rather than sort of trying to use it like your ass is going to be out of here if you don't do what I say, that 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 edge, if that is a better way of motivating people, and I do believe it is, um, that other other teams are more you're going to find that in other places. I think that's I think I think that's true. Um I also wonder every approach has trade-offs, right? That if telling people and using only the best case scenario for them, saying, here's what I want you to be and coaching through love instead of fear. And, and that, that sort of, I, Pete really does love his players. Uh, they may not feel that when he turns the page on them. There may be some hurt feelings along the way, but he really does. That I think there's a trade-off to that. And I think that we saw that on some very specific instances after the second Super Bowl appearance that when you empower players in the way that Pete does, it makes it harder to tell them no. And I think we saw that with Marshawn Lynch and Cam Chancellor would be two guys specifically. Now, Cam, after his holdout, ended up, I don't want to say coming back, but he found his peace being a Seahawk. Whereas at the start of the 2015 season, he was really unhappy and wanted to be be paid differently. That I always saw that those those moments or Richard Sherman flipping out on the sideline a couple times, um, that those were moments that that's the other side of the coin with Pete's approach is that, yes, you get a lot of benefits by by empowering players and 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 making them believe that they're capable of whatever like the best possible outcomes that also makes it harder to tell them. No, I've wondered if on a macro scale, that same thing, not that people get in entitled or more, more empowered, but if you don't, if you don't have that hard edge of fear based, we're going to be ruthless about moving on from players because the Seahawks generally have not been very ruthless. They've made changes, but I would say if anything, they've, they've tended to wait too long to make changes as opposed to making them too rashly. Um, that when you don't have that edge, do you, do you kind of plateau a little bit? And if anything, I think we're all trying to look at and figure out over the, why were the second seven years not as successful as the first seven? And that's not to say that the second seven weren't successful, but they were good. And the first seven, they were great. They were exceptional. They were incredible for that two-year window. And I wasn't some... I'm not someone who thinks that this was the best move, but I understand why it happened. Right. Like if you ask me my opinion, should he remain his coach? Yeah, I think I think they would have been better off keeping him. But I understand why I might be wrong about that. 
But that mystery of kind of what happened in the second seven compared to the first seven is one that's that's hard. I, I would actually, what's interesting is the NFL, there's a lot of turnover among coaches. But once you reach a certain level, guys kind of are beyond firing. And coaches don't, coaches, it seems to me, and I might be wrong about this, but it seems to me coaches change more frequently in the Premier League. Mm. At, at really mm. high level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and there are other countries like Brazil, like the way that they run through coaches there and the frequency with which they make it. And so I've always been curious about would you be better off as an NFL, NFL franchise? Could there could there be a value in having your coach be more interchangeable and be able to, hey, does a different voice get somebody out of does a different scheme? Does something different happen? Because there does tend to be this idea in the NFL that, well, once you get to a certain level, like Mike Tomlin's beyond reproach and Bill Belichick was for a number of years. And I, I'm the one that's sitting here saying Pete Carroll was kind of like that for me. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's the best way. That's just the way it kind of tends to happen in the Mm. NFL. And it's that, that is interesting to me because the, the sport I covered before was the NBA and the NBA. It's very clear how coaching tenures work. Um, which is you coach for as long as the best players will listen to you. (laughs) That's And and it's very clear when you get it, when your best player doesn't want to listen to that coach anymore, that coach's ass is out of there. And the reason that Greg Popovich lasted for so long in San Antonio is because he's tended to have the absolute nicest guys as absolute superstars. And that Tim Duncan wasn't the kind of guy that stopped listening to his coach. The NFL the players are the ones that generally get moved out. And it's not that I think that there's one that's better or worse, but I do wonder, are there, does it get stale? It's got to, to a certain extent. And maybe the, the boost of having a fresh voice or a different perspective in there off offsets. And we, we undervalue what that can provide for an established team like Seattle. Yeah. Um, obviously there's a cultural difference here, but almost every British Seahawk fan that I know We've been discussing Pete Carroll being sacked for at least four years, I would say. Yeah, that's fair. Like, I think Spurs have had nine managers in the time that Pete Carroll's <laughs> been the Seahawks head coach. And Spurs are a relatively, a relatively successful and from stable. a trajectory standpoint and stable team. But it's just like, it's what we do when the buy in, when they're not, when, when there's not an upward trajectory, the manager gets fired. So- um, but on, on that, I mean, you, you mentioned you know, why did the seven year, second seven years. Mm-hmm. It's hard to look past that one yard, isn't it? And and I just wonder, I'm not saying that that was necessarily, it wasn't that that was the thing that did it, but I wonder if that was the only time where Pete didn't show himself to be as vulnerable and genuine to his players as maybe he should have been. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, we've discussed this a lot of times, Stu, that, Maybe, yeah, look, there's no right, right way to react to how that happened. You pick a way to react and you hope it works. I think probably in hindsight, we would say that the way in which the team tried to deal with that situation was not the most successful way. And I wonder if you think that maybe Pete in a quiet moment might think maybe I should have just, just you know, gone balls out and just been completely honest with everyone the whole way through. And we're going to have a, a proper morning of the situation. And then we're going to be past it because I don't. I think what Stu and I have always said is that they never really grieved it properly, publicly. And I think it was the kind of thing that you can grieve publicly. 
and everyone will accept it because it just was so seminal. But that is that might also be him just staying consistent to his message about because he 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 jumped on some grenades there, didn't he? For quarterback did, for but, Ricardo and um, yeah, I I want to I want to yeah I want to walk through that though. How would grieving it publicly look? It, I don't know, but I I don't necessarily think that the kind of these were like warriors who loved fighting each other and could say anything to each other at any time. They had Tell the Truth Mondays. You know, it, it seems from the outside looking in that in overly trying to protect perhaps Russ at the time, which is understandable as a franchise quarterback, maybe put too many noses out of joint. And I think we can pretty much say quite clearly that that moment was the beginning of the downfall of that team. And that did start affecting players that they never really got over. I mean, Stu and I, we, you know, we've spoken to KJ Wright, Doug Baldwin. I think they've all made mention of the fact that, you know, perhaps they would have looked at it and do it in a different way. Now, as I say, you pick away at that moment and you, you try, and there's no right or wrong way until three years down the line when you realize if you got it right or wrong. But I don't know. It just, the, the reason that I loved that team so much is that they were so vulnerable and so open and it felt like we knew everything about them. And it felt like they cocooned themselves to the issue after that. And I think there would have been enough love from the city to kind of like, who's the name of the, the Buffalo kicker? Kevin, is it Kevin Nor- that missed the, the, missed Scott the kick? Norwood? Scott Norwood. Scott Norwood. Yeah. I think I'm right in saying that like at the parade, when they got back, like he got like a standing ovation from the whole city and like everyone kind of had their moment together and they all sort of mourned it together. I don't know. It felt like there could have been a collective way to get over that. Maybe a couple things, because I would point out that the next year they start two and four cams held out for the first two games Things are a mess. Then they rally and they really put it together and they get back to the playoffs. So I'm not certain that saying that was that was the moment that sort of destroyed everybody. If that had if that had been the case, if they had gone two and four and then really collapsed, I I think I'd be more prone to say that was that was the incident. I also think that the players themselves are maybe the least (laughs) sort of trustworthy sources on how this could have been done differently. And that's not to say that their feelings aren't valid there. They just wanted something different than what happened to have happened. And to say like, how did they deal with it or could, could the team have handled it better? I think what most of the players wanted was not to have lost that Super Bowl mm. the way that it happened. And I'm right. not sure if there was a right way to do that. Um, I'm I'm intrigued by the idea of how you could handle it and acknowledge it differently because the, there's no doubt that it hung as a shadow. Mm. And there were a number of people and players, there were a number of players who were exceptionally pissed and did believe that the fact that they didn't hand the ball off had something to do with the the tension between Marshawn and the franchise and 
by that, I mean Pete, because Marshawn had wanted to get paid before that season. Marshawn had become increasingly hostile toward the team over the course of that season. That became even more pronounced the next year after he had signed an extension that they'd offered him. Um, I also think that there's a little bit of, of some revisionist history because a different way to do that would have been to go in and say, you guys all got to suck it up and get over it. That this happens in sports and, and, and you lose games that make you really pissed off and you guys need to stop pointing the finger and start thinking about how we can be better back because there's nothing that's happened. That's going to change that. And I think there's an argument to be made that there was a lot of attempts made to appease everyone's hurt feelings, um, including that offer of a contract extension to Marshawn Lynch. That was an extension. Marshawn never played a down uh, of that extension. Mm. He was signed for the next year. Mm. They, they gave him that. And some of that was because in the wake of the Super Bowl, how much leverage he had. And people were pissed that he didn't get the ball. Um, if you're going to assign blame on that play about where it went wrong, the the very fundamental element of the play is that Jermaine Curse got ragdolled at the line by Brandon Browner. Now, that's not Jermaine's fault. That's that's the the what the play called for at that point. That's expecting him after having recently made a 40 yard reception when he was flat on his back to be able to not only go against one of the more like physically strong corners in the league, but someone who knew Seattle's scheme. Um, I think that the real fault there is that the nature of the pass that was called, not the decision to pass it. And it certainly wasn't Russ's fault. This is one of the funnier complaints that I ever heard was so there's our HBO real sports documentary. Like it was an interview about that play that happened in that off season. And Russ is interviewed in it by Bryant Gumble. And there were a couple guys who were annoyed because in the interview, Russ takes responsibility and talks about how he's going to come back from the interception and, and sort of it's, it's, it's phrased and framed as a, this is going to be the adversity that I overcome. There were people who were pissed about that because they felt that Russ was making himself the center of a play in which he didn't do anything wrong. He didn't make a bad read. He did. He executed the play as it should have been executed. He made the correct interpretation. The problem was he didn't have the space because of the thing with Jermaine. And at that point, if guys are mad at that, they're not really mad at a lack of accountability, right? They're mad because there is growing tension between Russ and the team. And we could talk about how Pete might have managed that differently because he did try to protect Russ. And, and I don't think that ultimately helped. But there were also a lot of dudes that were really pissed at Russ in a way that was kind of irrational. And, and I, would I would say is immature. It's understandable. But it was an immature. So there are so many different things going on. And if what I would say is we talked about trade-offs. 
that's one of the trade-offs that you have when you get together a lot of really headstrong personalities and you use a lot of empowerment is that when things go sideways and they do, it's going to be kind of nuts. And I think that Pete managed it okay. I don't think that's the reason why the second seven years weren't as successful as the first seven. It might've been the reason why the LOB defense was never going to get back to that point. And it, pro it was certainly the reason why Richard Sherman's screaming at people on the sidelines. <laughs> like there are some issues there. I, I actually, I don't have a lot of, a lot of feelings that they handled that poorly. Um, they could have made different decisions and maybe there's an outcome better. I just think that they had a pretty, they had a volatile concoction and they, they reaped a lot of benefits from that volatile concoction. And eventually when you got that volatile of a concoction, you're going to have some stuff that goes sideways and then you're going to have some explosive reactions. You got to deal with the fallout of it, and that's just part of it. Yeah. Any of that second seven year that recreate that because, like you say, the LOB kind of was dismantled pretty quickly after that. Like all, all those personalities were out of the building relatively quickly in different ways, and they haven't really, for some of maybe some of the players over the last couple of years, have tried to like recreate that with like Quadres and Jamal's like peacocking and stuff like that. And but they didn't have a Marshall Lynch on the other side of the ball. They didn't yeah. they didn't have that but as you said against the Ravens back in twenty eleven, they didn't have that someone to like impose themselves. Like DK's had a few opportunities, but every time he does one thing wrong, you've got seven thousand people on social media saying to trade him, which is yeah, another conversation. Crazy. But but like but like they did like for all the defense issues, the biggest one they've never really replaced for like psychological reasons of the opponents was number 24 like that's like it's just it's, that's the hardest one to replace wasn't it because you could you could play the same scheme you could play the same players and that the, the the level of the players is not that probably dissimilar but the the everything that 24 brought to the table was just never replaced and that kind of feels like to me that the biggest thing that was missing for those sec second seven yeah I've had people with the team swear that they didn't change their scouting profiles, that they stopped because <laughs> I'll just say, I said, did they stop that? They stop acquiring assholes because, and <laughs> even, even then I probably shouldn't, because I do think that there is a benefit to having really stubborn, headstrong football players. And, and I don't mean that as in, in, in anything other than sort of a football, that defiant sense, they have been much less volatile over the past seven years. I've had people swear that that's not because they've changed the type of players that they're looking for or screened, um, for, for guys. And, and certainly you've seen <laughs> DK Metcalf does have a tendency to attract flags and is a very, very feisty combative player. So, but I, I wondered that, did that, did, did they get, did they become more manageable in a sense? And, and that, and that came at a cost. I, I, I think that's possible. Um, there's no doubt that they haven't gotten a running back like Marshawn Lynch, but you look around and how many, how many running backs around the sure. league, he's a pretty rare talent. And, Dude, he was drafted in the first half of the first round. Like that, that guy has always been seen that way. Um, really, really elite is is the combination of 
He's faster than any back should be at that size and stronger than any back you're going to deal with. And then just that hardball attitude that he has. But there's there's no doubt. And it's not for lack of trying because they've certainly God knows they've spent enough <laughs> draft picks on running backs. Yeah. But, but even that, they've gone different ways. Because if you look at Kenneth Walker and Marshall Lynch or Rashad Penny in the same room, you go, yeah, they don't play the same position. No, they're different, different, different styles of backs for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think? I was struck yesterday in Pete's press conference and difficult to take too much because the emotions must have been running so high. But it, a lot of it struck me as when he was talking about John Schneider that, you know, now, John, you get to run the team. That's <laughs> sort of how it felt to me. It felt very much like I've been the boss. I mean, he even said, I don't want to be the GM. I want to hire the general manager. And that that's a little bit of an alarm bell um, for sort of, you know, how that relationship may have gone in the past. But I wonder if, you know, we've spoken a lot about Pete's accountability or lack thereof, given how brilliant he was at managing almost anyone he came came across. I wonder if maybe there may have been a benefit if he had ceded some control on personnel and let John do his job in finding Pete great players for Pete to coach. I, it, it It's felt in the last few years a bit like it's a bit all-encompassing for Pete and that he's been doing too much of it and actually at that point you can't see the wood from the trees it's always been really hard to understand sort of the delineation of personnel responsibilities because john has a lot of power and is in charge of their personnel department he's not a figurehead he's not someone who is is sort of executing what pete tells him to do he's got his own very strong opinions and is a really well respected personnel guy i mean that's i don't know if people realize this but he was hired at age 30 to be in charge of an nfl roster in washington under marty schottenheimer now it didn't last long because marty schottenheimer was working for 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 dan for for daniel snyder and that only lasted a season but like john's John's got a background and a lot of credibility, but it it was hard to tell uh, which which were the guys that John was really like. Here's who the play. Here's the here's the play. Here's the decision we're making here, and and Pete saying, "Okay, go for it." And how much of it was Pete? My sense is that Pete had a stronger hand more recently, but. That's me reading the tea leaves, and I give both of both Pete and John a lot of credit because those are relationships. When you've got two guys, John doesn't report to Pete, and Pete doesn't report to John, but Pete is the one who has final say on football decisions. They've been really good about sort of not undercutting the other guy, um, at least from everything I've seen. And I think that I'm in a position where I I would have been one of the people who who would have known if one guy was kind of trying to sell the other guy out behind the scenes. Um, I am. And I, I read yesterday's press conference exactly the way you did, that it was an announcement of a passing of the torch. And I'm really interested to see how John, the, the kinds of decisions that John will make to reshape the, the coaching and maybe the, the scheme of the defense, but also the the personnel does does the emphasis on running backs reflect what Pete wanted um is is he more willing to 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 be someone who looks at 
taking sort of more positional value into account in their draft boards than they have. Um, quarterback ever. That's fascinating to me. Um, I've always chalked that up to Pete. Mm. John comes from Ron Wolf's school of personnel, which was, and Ron was one of the the formative influences on John, which is you draft a quarterback every year. <laughs> they clearly don't. <laughs> it's, it's the single most inexplicable thing to me um, of why, even if you've got a quarterback set up, you're not, you're not spending just, just for the sheer sense of it, it. What happens if that guy gets hurt? It's the one position that can appreciate uh, I would be shocked if they don't draft a quarterback this year, but I said the exact same thing last year. Um, it, it'll be really interesting. I will. I think. I think what Pete did in that press conference yesterday. I think Pete was showing an example of how you can support a decision you disagree with that comes at your own expense. I think it was sort of his final demonstration of what it means to protect the team. And it's interesting seeing the picture of all the players that had gathered with him last night. And then you think about the number of them that were pissed off at him and, and really mad when they left. And that was always the trait, right? That they would love playing for Pete. And then when they left and maybe even right before they left, there was this feeling of like, I am over this. I am ready to go somewhere else. These guys have lost their way. And then there was like an actual hostility and then they would come back. And I think what Pete did yesterday was to show that even when it comes at your expense, even when you're the one that gets the, the business end of the stick, that you can still support the team. I, I think that's what was happening. I think he'll coach again. Uh, I'll be very interested to see what happens. Um, and, and I'm, I'm, I am, I'm, I'm really interested and excited to see, see what John does with the team. Cause it's clear he's the one that's going to be calling the shots now. Yeah. I mean, that, I think I said to you, Adam, on site, watch it, that the reason that Bobby Wagner was one, cause he was in the room, but another reason he was getting called out so much is he's the last one who came back, but he's the yeah. last one who, who went away for a year was pretty successful for accounts in LA, but he's the last one who went away, maybe had some gripes with how they dealt with that two years ago, but he still came back a year later and was still at the focal point of everything. And probably not probably the the, the voice, the guy in that locker room for the last nine months. Yeah, it's interesting. Like there's part of me that's wondered if because Pete's the one that wanted Bobby back. Pete's the one that drove that. And there's no doubt that Bobby had an incredible effect on the leadership and he has a lot of respect from a lot of guys that said the defense stunk. And there, there was, there was part of me that wondered because I know that the Pete's feeling was, is that we need Bobby back to show these guys that we're serious about being able to win the Super Bowl. that that's that making that kind of addition of this kind of player who has that kind of respect, who understands what we do, that makes that kind of statement. And Bobby says he wants to play next year. I would be shocked if Bobby Wagner is back with the Seattle Seahawks. We'll see how it goes. But that would be one of those where I've wondered. I I always thought when Pete first became the head coach, I thought that you were going to see a situation in which they were going to spend their money on offense and then their defense was going to be a bunch of young guys who he he hopped up and got psyched to play and that they would they were going to turn through the defense. 
And that actually became the exact opposite. He wanted his veterans on defense. He fought and and resisted change. And I might be the ass who thinks that you're better off moving on from guys that if you're going to talk about how to best sustain in a salary cap era, that they would have been better served by being a little more cutthroat, a little more cold-blooded, and maybe trading some guys before they got to the point where they were getting released or ran out their contracts. I think that Bobby's a pretty good example of that in terms of I'm not sure if it was best for that defense last season for Bobby Wagner to play every single snap. Hmm. It may affect what certain other linebacker free agents decide to do next year about that. They're maybe maybe a little bit more reluctance because they weren't trusted with that middle defense role for the last couple of years. They had to go and get Bobby back from West Coast. That might be reading way too much and digging too deep into it, but we'll see. Well, it'll be interesting to see. It, it'll be interesting to see. They've got, they've got, they've certainly got some, some questions and some issues that they're going to have to solve on that defense personnel wise. It helps that you got a new guy that comes in there. I mean, that's yeah. the one thing is like, you're going to have, you're going to have, it's clear that their defense I'm not sure what the offense will end up looking like. I'm certain that the defense is going to be dramatically different from what we've seen. It's it's uh it's that kind of like purgatory we're now in, aren't we? Because we there's no real concrete names apart from like the buzzwords Dan Quinzel. We're we're in a purgatory until Schneider gets to work, and um, no one really knows anything until that starts happening, kind of thing. So it's it's yeah. it's, it's just a lot of questions that we're, we're probably two or three, if not more weeks away from finding the answers to it'll be, we don't have a great, people don't have a great feel for, and John's got a lot of connections and a lot and a strong network of people. Um, it, obviously it goes through green Bay, but he's also worked in Kansas city. He's also worked in, in, in Washington. Uh, he's got his own sort of tree of, of front office guys that he's been very tight with over the years. Clearly, Quinn is going to be someone that they talk to, but I expect Dan Quinn's going to be pretty sought after. I think Raheem Morris is is someone who could become uh, a, a real target. Mike McDonald is going to be the very hot name. He's the defensive coordinator with the Baltimore Ravens. On offense, um, I don't I don't know a ton about Bobby Slowitz. Uh, he's the uh, I might even be screwing up his first name. His last name is definitely Slowitz. Yeah, yeah, it's Bobby. Yeah. yeah. The offensive coordinator for the Houston Texans yeah. is is someone that very much he comes from that Shanahan tree that is kind of now the the main arterial for modern offense in the NFL. Mm-hmm. Um, people have mentioned Kalen DeBoer. I'd be I'd be shocked if if John if John really went and looked at any college coach, and it certainly I just don't think Kalen DeBoer has the amount of experience or history. Um, he's been a head coach really two stops now. I just, I, it, at, at the top level of college football. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, it becomes, it, this is actually, so there is an experiment that was done. I think it was 30 or 40 years ago and they would, they would reveal, I was just reading about this. They would take a picture, like the picture's all blacked out and they would turn over a couple of tiles at a time and have people try to guess what it was. And they had two groups and one group got it's like the game classic concentration. I don't know if they had that. Game it, it, it was it was catchphrase over here. Okay, so, <laughs> so like that where they re- remove a couple of pieces. They did two control groups, and one group got t- essentially twice as many updates. Like they would have 
one piece, then another piece, then another piece. The other group, they went two at a time, so it'd be two and then four. And that it took more pieces for the group that got incremental information. That you were better off getting fewer updates with than you were getting more information, which is fascinating. And I'm convinced that that's what happens in modern sports media reporting. <laughs> that right now at this moment, right, we know that Pete Carroll's not going to be the head coach. We know that Dan Quinn has experience on this staff and is a defensive coordinator with the Falcons or with the Cowboys and has previous experience. He's almost certain to be a candidate here. Beyond that, none of us really know. I know that John Schneider's really good friends with Mike McCarthy. Doesn't seem like he's going to be going anywhere. I'm convinced that if you put me in a time capsule and and only like let me out for air in two days and then put me back in the time capsule <laughs> and then let me out for two, I would be able to figure it out quicker than someone who was like constantly plugged into the updates on the Twitter machine, just sitting there and hitting the refresh, refresh. I think that more information, especially when we're not sure about the quality of the information, is a handicap in these situations. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah, it, it, it kind of like refreshes everyone, doesn't it? Like- Try and find out, figure out because it is going to be the first sign of what this John Schneider led Seahawks is going to maybe begin to look like as well, isn't it? Or is that, yeah, I can say one thing Jim Harbaugh is not going to be the coach of the Seattle oh, Seahawks. <laughs> Jim Harbaugh will not be the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks. That is not going to happen. I, I think I saw Dan, Daniel Jeremiah floated the idea of Jim Schwartz, which is interesting. I don't. But I, th- I think it was more game in the room and just asking how he beat Shanahan. <laughs> he's yeah. he's one against Carl Shanahan. Jim's. I believe that Jim Schwartz told Daniel Jeremiah. <laughs> 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 There is nobody who likes Jim Schwartz quite like Jim Schwartz. That's probably fair. Uh, Danny, I I reckon I was further down the line than you were in the sense of I I thought this week was the right time for for a change to happen, personally, Mm -hmm. as a coach. Um, And partly because of... uh, If I was John Schneider listening to that press conference yesterday, I would have been a little bit miffed at times at some of the ways I felt I was being portrayed a little bit. And I wonder if the idea of Dan Quinn as the continuity candidate, John is now less likely to go that way because he will want to imprint more of his, This is I, he'll want to show it's my team now because there was a little bit yesterday where it felt like Pete was saying, okay, John, I w- I'm now going to allow you the opportunity. Yeah. And, and I also wonder, like, there's been a lot of wonderful revisionism, not revisionism, lovely memories that have been thrown up in the last couple of days. But if you take yourselves back to about 72 hours ago, when the Cardinals were winning 21-13, the Packers had sealed the playoff spot against the Bears. That was as low as I've seen the Seahawks fan base on social media for a long, long time. Pete, To the point where I don't even think anyone knows that we won that game against Arizona, apart from the cigars coming out. Uh, I don't think anyone cares that we actually... Tariq will and definitely yeah. knows. He he knew. He he knew. <laughs> you see him grab his bathing suit. Oh there? my goodness. <laughs> and I, I just wonder if given how flat that period was, Dan Quinn strikes me as the continuity candidate in a time that's calling for widespread change. Like I, I think I think we need a change of, of direction. And it worries me that 
going down the continuity route, I'm not convinced that the tracks that this train was on is necessarily one that's ascending at a particularly rate, great rate of knots. So I completely buy into exactly that line of thought. I'm not sure that Dan Quinn is as much the continuity candidate as it would initially appear. Mm-hmm. Quinn was, was one of two coaches that Carroll retained when he got here. He didn't hire Dan. He retained him. He'd been Dan Quinn had been hired by Jim Mora and was actually hired by Mora with the expectation to be the defensive coordinator. And that ended up being Gus Bradley, who came with the seal of approval from Monty Kiffin. And Monty Kiffin is one of Pete's closest friends in 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 football and in life. And between the two, Gus Bradley is much more between Bradley and and Quinn. Bradley is much more sort of from the the train of thought from the mm-hmm. school, more continuity with Pete and and his philosophies. There's no doubt that a lot of Pete is included in Dan Quinn's approach, but Quinn Quinn wasn't initially hired by by Pete, and then he ended up going and I think he became the defensive coordinator at Florida. Florida when Muschamp was the head coach there. And then he came back to replace Bradley when Bradley took the Jacksonville job. Um, Yeah, I I don't, I don't know. There's not, there's not ties between Schneider and Quinn Schneider. Schneider didn't, didn't hire him here. Um, So I don't know how, how he feels, but I know that everybody loves Dan Quinn and that Dan Quinn was somebody who had a lot of equity within the building but I completely could see how how John we might be connecting that dot those dots more readily than than John Schneider is when he looks at this being sort of his first step in it's weird to say like he's gonna put his imprint on the team because his his fingerprints are all over these players. I mean, mm. like the decision to draft Earl Thomas. That was that was John Schneider. That was that was John. And and in fact, if you came down to it, I'm not sure at that point whether Pete Carroll would have evaluated Taylor Mays ahead of Earl Thomas. Like John was the one who was like, if you think Taylor Mays is better pro safety than Earl Thomas, you're crazy. And they did. They would have considered drafting Taylor Mays later in the first round. But Earl was the guy that that and that was John. So it's weird to say he's going to put his imprint on it. But I also agree with what you said. There was. There was an undertone of like, okay, it's yours, big fella. Hmm. And I think that that's better for John than the intimations that he'd hmm. been muscled out, which which Pete really didn't do. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is there is there is an unspoken reality that is here that I don't want to say that there was a power struggle, but the Seahawks, the ownership, Jody Allen chose John ahead of Pete to lead the franchise going forward. And I could see that thought process being, we're, we're going to, we're going to do something different here. We, we're going to do something that Seattle hasn't seen before. This is, this is going to be something that, that I think reflects the, the most, a direction that's going to be changed and is going to accelerate Seattle getting back to that tier of great teams. Yeah. It's just, it's going to be a fun few weeks. I've got other things to pull about when we're at the season's finish. I know who would have thought. Well, but the, well, I mean, there is this. There well, is the then find that, reasons not to pod, but then no mind. <laughs> but like, there are a lot of contracts that lapse in five weeks' time. Uh, the quarterback being one of them. Uh, 
So they're going to have to act fairly quickly. You mean it it lapses where they have an opportunity to let him go? Yeah, as in like the the decision making decisions need to be made. Yeah, I can't imagine Geno Smith's not back. I, I can't, I'm sure, I can't imagine that they that they that they don't bring him back. I can see him being a Seahawk, but I'm not entirely sure that he's going to be a Seahawk under the same contract. Whether that's an extension or because uh, you know his cap number is going to triple at a time where there isn't that much money going forward. I think there's a few other players as well who five days after the Super Bowl their guarantees roll over, and they kind of need someone to come in and make the decisions. You know, if someone doesn't fancy Geno Smith, then they're going to go. Yeah. Yes. But it's not just a matter of who are you going to get that's better than him? Because you are at a point they they don't have they don't have a situation where they're going to remake themselves by money that they shave off the salary cap to spend in free agency. Um I think that that Geno Smith like yeah, maybe the contract gets adjusted, but the, unless they're really willing to go into an off season, I, I just can't imagine that they're going to go into it without a quarterback given where they draft and mm. what's going to be available on the market. And they don't have, I mean, there are some fairly easy decisions I think coming up. I can't imagine a world in which Jamal Adams is, is, is back on this roster next year, but there, I don't, I don't think that they're in a situation where somebody has to make a call on a franchise level player because Geno Smith is not paid at such a level where y- you you have to, to you have to believe that he's going to be your quarterback for the next five years to be able to bring him back. That that's just not where his contract is. True. I guess the issue is that you say, you know, who are you going to find that's better than Geno Smith? Two years ago, you would never have said, "Well, we can get rid of Russell Wilson because we have Geno Smith." <laughs> but Geno was. I, on- I'm not disagreeing with you, but no, like yeah. there is a hypothetical where a head another head coach could come in and say, "Well." I think this bloke's going to be much better than Geno Smith. Just watch me coach him. Yeah, but man, I mean, if Geno's on the free agent market, like Geno's going to get a multi-year contract. Mm. Like that's if just in the in the 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 pantheon of guys who are free agents, um, he's he would be a desirable player for ten teams. Yeah. I, I I would I would think yeah. at least. Yeah, and and because you haven't drafted a freaking quarterback, <laughs> you don't really have anybody. Unless you think that Drew Locke, if you think that Drew Locke's capable of being a starting quarterback in the NFL, then you could make that decision with Geno Smith. I just don't happen to think that Drew Locke's a starting quarterback in the NFL. And he's out of contract as well anyway, so uh, you'd go into free agency with zero quarterbacks. Yeah, Geno maybe is a bad example, but I think there's three or four other players that have contracts that tick over to certain guarantees that maybe I, I don't know i'm not sure like we're so out of the loop when do head coaches normally get hired oh anytime between now and i mean there's there's a window in which you could have it happen this week but now there's only two teams with buys if if mike mcdonald is going to be your head coach you could interview him this week but then you'd wait until they were eliminated not, i think they've changed the rules that you oh, can't really? interview until after the divisional round now. Didn't didn't Blank wait until we were at the playoffs with Dan Quinn? Yes. And that but they knew who they were gonna hire. Yeah. They they that was that was something that had been agreed to. They were just waiting to announce it. You could have a situation like that. Yeah. Um, but 
yeah, no, I don't think that you'll have any. I'm just, I'm trying to run through the the guys. I mean, I think there's a question about Quandre Diggs. There's a question about Jamal Adams. There's a question about Geno Smith, though. I think that one's fairly straightforward. Tyler Lockett. Um, I mean, he, he he was talking about signing a house on the press conference after the game on Sunday. <laughs> which is like wilder than a cigar, I think. <laughs> like, it's the third thing he said. It's like, oh, sign a house. It's the same as that. It's like, no, it's okay. <laughs> Sound. Um, um, yeah. I, I guess those are off the top of my head. I would say that the guys, um, yeah, I mean, Will Disley, but if you're not going to bring back Noah Fant, which I wouldn't expect, but I don't know what his contract, what his free agency is going to look like. Um, I, their, their salary cap is in okay shape. They don't, they don't have as much as people will sit there and, and rail about it. You're not going to spend your way back to being, being relevant. It's going to be the development of these players that you've drafted the previous years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, the top five pick at quarterback, and you've said the defense is going to look different. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so obviously, it, this will maybe a weird. It, how you, we talked before we start recording about you uh, flying to Houston. Would, would you wanted to be in that room at VMAT yesterday? After all, like the time you spent listening to Pete and like being there for that, like kind of final sign off. Sure. Um, I also kind of some of the changes that I've I've gone through professionally and moving away from daily sports journalism. Yeah, but not, not even that like context, just like being yeah, in that. See him? Being, yes. Yeah. I, yes. I would have liked to see it. Um, I, I would have liked to been there for that, but I would say that it's impossible for me to separate sort of that, that idea of being there mm. without sort of immersing myself back mm-hmm. in uh, the, I would say this, that it would have been hard for me to see a lot of the people that I know, given what they've said over the years or how they actually feel about Carol or about the Seahawks and and about about the people around them to watch them fawning over the end of it. Like that would have struck me as fairly disingenuous. And that's becoming harder for me to be silent about as I've removed myself from the daily mix. I realize that it's part of the game that is played and the people who suck up to power and then sort of gravitate to whoever's going to be the next sort of big kahuna, that that that's how the game of sports journalism works. But it's annoying for me to see people who I think are being phony about that. And I realize I'm kind of being personal and petty when I say that, but that's the part of me where I would have liked to be there to see sort of how how people felt as he left. Mm-hmm. But there's also that public press conference spectacle part of it that I've kind of come to resent a little bit. And I just prefer not to participate in it. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh anything else, I think for a turnaround in 24 hours, <laughs> we, we've said all that can be said. I mean, so, 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 yeah. so yesterday when the news broke, we got all the group chats went mad and all that, the phone went off and uh, uh, I rang you, I think. And yeah. I was like, right, who should we get on? You, you legitimately were the first name. Ah, oh, my mouth was like, we've got to get Oh, that. that's nice of you guys to say. Just, just because I'm, like, happy, the, like, I'm happy you asked me. I mean, it's always fun to talk to you. I mean, it's what, 11 of the 14 years you probably covered him for? Yes, I was yeah. in town for 10 of the 14. Yeah. For the first 
for the first three, I was really, I kind of went to almost everything he did uh, <laughs> when I was still at the Seattle times, it changed a little bit when I went to the radio, but that also meant that I, I interacted with him in a couple of different ways and doing the pregame, I would tape a weekly conversation with him. Mm. Um, a couple years ago, he let me kind of tail him through a three day mini camp, which was a behind the scenes opportunity that I'd never had before, which was really fun. Um, I've learned a lot from Pete, not just about football, but I think about how to how to manage and focus on what's important and let some other stuff go. And I think that Pete's a pretty good example of how to not let Pete is not nearly as concerned with how he looks publicly as he is about the impact and the connections that he makes privately. And I think that that's really, really admirable. He's willing, he's willing to look weak publicly to be able to preserve or enhance a private connection that he has. And I think that that's really, really admirable. And I think it's rare in a world where people are constantly concerned with how they look. Yeah, it's, it's going to be very strange uh, when the mm-hmm. next of our season comes around, but there's a long way to go and see I'm interested to see what'll happen too. It'll be fun to have different. Like, there's yeah. no doubt about that. It will be very fun to have it be different. Yeah, yeah. So, I, so my dad asked what happened. I was like, basically, if our soccer team manager left, that happened. Like, mm-hmm. I had like 25 years to our manager, but uh, but yeah, and uh, uh, no Ben this week, Adam. No Ben. There's no. no, no. It's, it's a joyous show today. It's no, a yeah, joyous yeah, yeah. Show. I'll just check in because there might be some. But yeah, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Really do appreciate your time, Danny, and jumping on. As I'm saying, such short notice. If anyone wants to jump on, where can go? People, as I said before, we start recording your piece on Pete was was really fucking good. I read it earlier uh, during my break at work tonight. Uh, where can people go and catch that and all your other musings? I I write a podcast or write a, a newsletter called The Dang Apostrophe, which is available at Substack.com. You can still occasionally catch me on Twitter at Danny O'Neill. Oh yeah, if it, honestly, go and read it. It's really really cool. Uh, really really good as well, which is. Yeah, uh, the, the Ped Pod on Twitter, Adam, I remember this week. Yeah, well um, uh, All the usual means and methods, Spotify, iTunes, all the all the things will be back regularly as well. We get more information and see what happens. And see who the Two squares at a time. Two squares at a time. <laughs> like catchphrase. Uh, Danny, go and Google 1990s catchphrase on YouTube and you'll. it's not what you expect. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, uh, until the next time, this has been the Pedestrian Podcast. Go Hawks. <laughs>